Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Sylvain Patai, who is the guest on today's episode, has more than a few surprises to share about the turns his life and his winemaking have taken. My life has been completely the opposite of what I thought. Patai's domain is based in Marsanet, which is an area of Burgundy with its own particular history. And it's a history shaped in part by Marsanet's proximity to the city of Dijon, by Appalachian groupings, and by the historical presence of Domaine Claire Dau. Claire Dau, which no longer exists in the way that it did for half of the 20th century, was founded by Joseph Claire. Joseph grew up in Burgundy in humble circumstances and was originally not a winemaker. He worked in the French civil service before World War I, but the war altered the course of Joseph's life, as his grandson Bruno Claire explained to me. Bruno, who owns a winery in Marseille today, spoke to me about the history of Marsonnet in general, and about his grandfather Joseph in particular, in a conversation translated by Peter Wasserman. Et donc, euh, ça a été, euh, lui aurait, aurait souhaité être vigneron, mais donc il n'en avait pas l'occasion. Donc, euh, c'est la guerre qui a tout changé dans sa vie, dans ce sens qu'en étant... Euh... So, uh, he would have wanted to be a, a winemaker, but uh, he couldn't, and the war changed everything because of the... War and the studies that he had done, he ended up in the artillery. So every time the uh, regiment of which he was part uh, got pretty much killed off, uh, they came back to Dijon to reform. He was a non-commissioned officer at first and then an officer, so he was billeted uh, outside of the barracks, and he was billeted to Marcenay, right next to the Dau winery. This is where he got back into the wine world, in a sense. Donc il aura eu l'occasion de revenir je crois quatre quatre fois euh, de retour du front sur Marsanet et donc là il fera la connaissance de Marguerite Dahu. So this happened four times where the regiment got decimated and he came back and was billeted in the same area and um, he finally met the daughter of Mr. Dahu and um, they married and uh, that's the start of the story. He used to see her go to the train station and go to her nursing job. Voilà, elle était, elle était, euh, elle était pas du tout infirmière au départ, mais euh, toutes les filles de bonne famille se devaient de, 
She was not a nurse at first, but as all uh, proper young ladies of the time, you were uh, affected to the war effort. And she worked at the Dijon Hospital and took the tram uh, uh, every morning uh, at the bottom of Marcinet. And he, no doubt, saw her there and probably approached her there at first. At the time, there was a lot of arranged marriages, especially in the uh, viticultural areas. And in this particular case, I can really say that this is a marriage of love. Parce que quand il va revenir donc de la guerre, se marier avec euh, ma grand-mère Marguerite, euh, il va retrouver euh, neuf hectares de vignes qui sont dans un. So when he came back from the war, um, he was, of course, landed with nine hectares of vines that were in a really bad state because there were no longer any men or any horses to work it. Had to put everything back together again. He had a brilliant idea. A lot of the uh, vines were planted to Gamay at that time in, uh, in Marseille, but in very few Pinot Noirs. And uh, he figured that he could make a, a rosé with the Pinot Noir, and that really saved the village. And so Marseille's the Appalachian is near Dijon. Oui, c'est les premiers villages qui, qui sont. Ce qui s'est passé, c'est qu'après la Révolution, euh, l'interdiction était faite de planter du, auparavant de planter de, du gamay. So, if we go a little back in the story, at the Revolution, uh, the laws, the planting laws, plantation laws, which disallowed gamay, were forgotten. And the first thing the three closest villages to uh, Dijon planted was gamay, because you could turn it around really fast, make good wine, and and sell it for a fair profit. And so what your grandfather did is he invented the idea of Marcinet Rosé from Pinot Noir, and that happened in 1919. So That happened in 1919, correct. And that became quite popular at a time of global depression. Oui, c'est devenu très populaire. Ensuite, le premier Américain qui a importé du, du Rosé de Marcinet, c'était Schumacher. Yeah, it was, it was a, a great help during the uh, 30s crisis. The first American to export rosé from France was Schoonmacher from Marcinet. And um, he found the idea great. He loved the wines and uh, built a market, basically, for the town. So the rosé, even though it helped us get through the uh, 1930s crises, when we got to the 60s, it was looked at uh, pejoratively in the sense where it wasn't as serious wine. It wasn't as serious as red. And Marcinet had sort of lost the touch of, uh, of, of making great red wines. So it was only after World War II that people started very slowly working towards making more red wines. And the 60s is where it really took off. So this is why we uh, only got the uh, Burgundy-level appellation until uh, 1965. So it took till 1965 to get the, just the generic appellation. After 1965, it took till 1987 to get the village appellation back. One of the reasons the village appellation was so long to come is that we didn't have enough Pinot planted in the village. And since 2002, we've put in a dossier for some premier crews in Marcinet. So for a long time, it was Bourgogne Marcinet Appalachian. Yeah. And then in the 80s, it became Marcinet AOC, now AOP. Oui, clair. How do you think that that affected the area of Marcinet, the growers there and the other domains? Donc, le, le, bon, ce qui s'est passé à Marcinet, donc, bon, on va refaire l'histoire, mais donc, le Pinot prend le dessus à partir des, des années 50, complètement. Marcinet got its uh, Appalachian 87, and uh, it, the Pinot planting started in uh, 
50. But it took a while for the older generation to really get with the appellation. They weren't being offered more money for Bourgogne-Marsanet than they were for just wine from Marsanet. Nor were they being ever offered that much money uh, uh, for Marsanet in 87 when the appellation came along. So um, uh, it took a couple of generations for people to really uh, get with the program, to really take stock of what had happened to them and use it uh, to their advantage. He said um, uh, mid-80s, there was only four people left who harvested by hand in Marsanet. Now, the people that had went to machines have come back from it since. They're now back to hand uh, handpicking. Do you think that when it became a Marsanet by itself, outside of Bourgogne Marsanet, that that helped with the quality of the area? Ah, oui, oui. oui, ça a poussé parce que les gens ont cru au nom. Et je dis cette génération de jeunes surtout. Donc c'est dit, ça y est, on va pas vivre en, comme nos, nos, nos pères à essayer de... Bon. From the time that there was the name Marsanet, there was something to fight for. All the younger generation, uh, uh, I mean, we're now, we're now talking about people that are 45, 50 years old, right? But really wanted to carry their name proudly and um, for it to be a proud appellation. Had they stayed in straight Bourgogne or gone to Côte de Nuit Village, which a lot of people wanted to go, they would have lost their identity. And they would have lost also the will to produce something great. And now we see true steps in quality. D'abord, oui, effectivement, le, faut savoir que les, les, les paysans, en fait, depuis la, la guerre de 14, ceux qui sont nés, donc euh, l'âge de mon père. I think that there's no profession that has known a deeper revolution uh, over the last hundred years than farmers. We've gone from using scythes, horse-drawn carts, ox-drawn plows, uh, so on, all the way to, at the end of my father's life, computers. The equipment that came on and that was available, that was made available, was just phenomenal in terms of the technical advances. Telling, uh, there's a very telling uh, number. In France, between World War One and World War Two, 40% of the population were farmers. Today, 3% of the population are farmers, which means that we have had an an extraordinary revolution. Your grandfather, Joseph, died in 1971. And I know you spent a lot of time with him in the decade, decade and a half before he died. What was he like towards the end of his life? As a personality, what was he like? Ben moi, j'ai connu, j'ai connu que les dix dernières années, en fait, de sa vie. Puisque moi, j'avais, quand il est décédé, j'avais 14 ans. Donc moi, je l'ai connu de, je peux dire, de 6 ans à... So I only really knew the last 10 years uh, uh, since uh, my, my first real memories of him were seven years old and uh, until 14. And um, my, my grandfather was not so much an authoritarian as the absolute patriarch. And he didn't have to say anything or raise his voice or anything like it was just a glance here and a glance there. People knew there was something askew and had to fix it. He said, for example, at a dinner table, he could just look at the table and if there was something missing, sort of look at where it might have been and then his grandmother would immediately get up from the table and go find the object and put it on the table. He's never heard him uh, uh, yell at anybody or use a bad word or anything, ever. That was Bruno Clare speaking about his grandfather Joseph, the wines of Marsanet, and changes to farming in the last 100 years. 
Savan Patai refers to some of these same events and changes in his interview coming up, but from a bit of a different perspective. That conversation and more in just a moment. Sustainability has never been more important, and DM is at the forefront of environmental responsibility. Having set a new standard in the world of closures, DM not only excels in the quality of its technological court closures, but also demonstrates an incredible commitment to caring for the environment. DM has taken steps to significantly reduce its carbon footprint, embracing green electricity and renewable energy in its factories. By 2025, they aim to reduce their direct emissions from energy and processing by 55%. Their sustainable closure solution, Origine by DM, combines natural cork with a binding agent composed of 100% bio-based materials and a beeswax emulsion, a successful testament to DM's commitment to eco-friendly practices. DM has pioneered a responsible and long-term vision for cork forests, playing a crucial role in sequestering hundreds of thousands of tons of CO2 each year. Planting thousands of new cork trees, DM actively contributes to sustaining our planet's natural resources, and that is something we all benefit from every day. DM doesn't just offer technically advanced cork closures, they also lead in environmental responsibility. Learn more about DM's commitment at dm-closures.com dot com forward slash i d t t that's d i a m dash closures with an s dot com forward slash i d t t for more information Savan Patai of Domain Savan Patai in Marsanay on the show today. Hello, sir. How are you? Hello. Very well. So you're specifically in Marsanay, which is an area near Dijon that went through some economic ups and downs around wine. The influence of, um, of Dijon has been very strong. And in this century, in this uh, 20th century, that was very difficult for wine business because of two wars, because of 29 crisis because of the 50s, because of 73 crisis uh, because of oil. At the end of uh, 19th century and beginning of uh, 20th, Marsanet was one of the best villages in, in Côte because of selling wine in Dijon. Marsanet is the closest village from the big city that was an industrial city. And you know, at this time, workers were drinking very much wine. Six, seven, eight liters wine every day. And... Um, it was much easier to carry some wine with no tracks to carry wine from Marsanet that was just five or six kilometers from Dijon than from Beaune that was 35. At this way, the Chenauve and Marsanet were very rich, much richer than the, the most famous in villages in the Côte. You know, in the 30s, the Confrérie des Chevaliers du Testevin has been created to try to make people drink wine from Burgundy. And they said, if we can't sell wine, we'll share it. You know, imagine, it was uh, in the 30s. It's just one century ago. And you can see some um, pictures for advertisement, publicity, where you can see some sparkling Clovujo. Because it was a business that uh, it was a funny wine at this period, and it permitted to sell wine. Everything has so much changed. 
some of the things that caught on in the Marcelnet area before your arrival and during that period of economic turbulence and also a lot more wine consumption in Dijon as it grew, because Dijon expanded a lot, were Gamay, Aligoté, and then Rosé from Pinot Noir, right? Yeah, and Rosé from Pinot Noir was a, a solution for crisis. It has been created in 1919, created by Bruno Claire's grandfather, who has tried to sell wine after the war. Everything was uh, destroyed, and the business was destroyed. The, the shops had closed. And, um, you know, in the 20s, in France, it was called Les Années Folles. Uh, people wanted to, to dance, they wanted to enjoy, they wanted to drink. They wanted to forget what they had lived for five years. And this rosé was a new style of wine. Uh, he has invented a, a style, a, a color of wine, and it was a very good idea because it has permitted to replant Pinot in Marsanet. And when you look at all books like Dr. Laval, Nangui Aubertin, Courtepe, they are very classical books about uh, parcels, about owners, about uh, methods of uh, winemaking in the 19th century. In those books, it was written in Marsanet. The was are very good, but we can't speak about them because they were planted in 1850-1870 because they were planted of Gamay and this guy he was very good in business he was very good to sell his wine he has been one of the first ones to sell wine in bottles and um, he has understood that this rosé could give cash flow to the demand because it would permit to sell the wine quicker and it was a funny wine and it was very fashionable at this time and we kept the rosé appellation due to this because it was uh, successful. When you were a kid, your father was friends with the Fournier family, which is also in Marsonnet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My father was a very good friend with uh, with Jean. Jean was uh, was farming his vines. My father was pruning, was making all what has to be made by him. But uh, Jean was uh, plowing, was uh, spraying, was harvesting with his team, and. Uh, vinifying for my father. And you and your brother Laurent both decided that you had some interest in wine and farming. Yes, as we were children, yeah. Maybe because we, we have spent very much time with our grandfather. Well, you know, we are farming with him for the potatoes, for the carrots, for everything, but it's lovely, you know. It's maybe like, like this, you, you fall in love for, for farming, for land, for the plants. And he had some small vines, and we are always with him in the vines. And the first times we are, we are vinified, we are with his vines, yeah. Aligoté. Because you still make Aligoté today. In fact, you make several of them. More than ever. When I see how much dedication you're putting into Aligoté, which is sometimes a wine that other people put less attention than you into, I feel like you're almost trying to reconnect with your grandfather and father that way, because they made homemade Aligoté. Yes, maybe. But there are many reasons for this. First... It has been forgotten, and I think it's a, it's a so good variety that it's a mission for me to try to make understand that it's a great, great variety if we take care with the vines and if we plant it in the best terroirs. You know, imagine you you are talking about Chardonnay or Pinot Noir. It's certainly able to be one of the best wines in the world. But in the bottom of Meursault, it will never be Perrier. And in the bottom of Vaughan, it will never be Romane Conti. And why could it be different with Aligoté? Imagine in the past, on the old books, it's told that Aligoté has to be planted in the gravely soils at the top of the slopes. It has to be pruned very short in goblet, and it, it has to be harvested late. Look at right now, 
is planted in a plain, in strong soils, very rich soils, with long prunings, with guillot pruning. So it means that the last buds will produce some very big grapes. And it's often harvested quite early because when aligotes are done, it's done. And imagine, it's completely the opposite. And for aligoté, I wanted to prove it can be great. Right now, there are seven different aligotés on my range with different terroirs. And I wanted to save those old vines because if they have no economic reality, they will be replaced. And in the last 10 years, one third of the superficie has disappeared. And the other situation there is that there's both clonal aligoté now, aligoté vert, and then aligoté doré like you use in the old vines, which is a selection of aligoté that's pre-clonal. So in a way, there's really different eras for aligoté, and you're bringing back the old one. Yeah, and many things have changed. Some administrations are trying to create a, a conservatoire aligoté to avoid to lose this genetic diversity. And it's a very good thing to plant a new vine with a some old selections of aligoté from Yonne, from Saint-Brie, from Marsonnet, from Vaughan, from Macon, from uh, Marceau, from, uh, from everywhere. And it will permit to save it. And maybe if the law can change, to take some woods to graft and uh, to replace aligoté vert by those ones. And, you know, if everybody pulls aligoté, it can move very quickly. And it can maybe make disappear those... Uh, very bad aligotés that are made with two high yields with a very systematic vinification. Well, we'll get back to how you're making the aligoté today because it's really interesting. But I don't want to skip too far ahead into the story. So in your teens, you went to school for viticulture and analogy, And then you ended up doing multiple years of harvest in Bordeaux. My life has been completely the opposite of what I thought. I didn't want to work in a laboratory. Absolutely not. I couldn't stand to be in a, in a room all the day. I wanted to travel by bike in Ireland. And I wanted to travel for at least five years all over the world, and especially in US. And um, the day before the exam, it was in 97, in one university in Bordeaux, I met the boss of the best laboratory in Bonn. And I asked him, as I knew he was consulting in California, I asked him some addresses. And uh, he told me that... Uh, it was too short from June to October to September for the papers, for everything. So he, he told me, but if you want, come on. In a big estate in Savigny, one of my clients, Domaine Antonin Guillon, the guy is lovely and uh, there are 15 hectares of uh, Premier Cru Grand Cru. It's uh, a very good place. And come on for the harvest. It was 97. So I came for the harvest just to make analysis in his, uh, in his estate. It was boring. But... Uh, Two hours in the morning, two hours in the afternoon, and the, the analysis were finished. And uh, I've spent all the rest of the day with the, the winemaker, with Vincent Nico, and it was passionating. And, uh, and Gary Cosset, after the harvest, told me... The guy who ran the laboratory. He wanted to, yeah, to take me to the lab, and I've stayed there four years. So I said, bye, Ireland, bye, <laughs> California, bye. <laughs> and I've been in a in very good laboratory in Bonn. The, you know, the, the methods are not the, the ones I like. So I've stopped when I've been fed up, but uh, it gave me uh, an incredible experience at just 22. And the amazing thing about it was that you were consulting for a range of wineries for that lab. So you were seeing a lot of different wines from different producers who were using different kinds of wood, who were working with different vine material, who were in different parts of the Cote d'Or. 
you were also in the job, uh, whether you wanted it or not, of selling those people things to help them with their wines in a technical level. And so you got to see what those things did, like additions. Yeah, sure. On the same harvest, you look at uh, 1,000 tanks. I was consulting 65 states. It's incredible. From north to south, different methods. Uh, you know, you, you had to work with uh, the best and the worst wine growers in the some of them wanted just to obtain 99. <laughs> and the other ones just wanted to, to make wines that could be sold uh, for brokers. And it's very different. And you know, you, you share very much experience with the other analogists. We are always toying with them just for fun to say uh, which appellation, which wood, which vinification. Uh, Blind tasting with the other yeah. people in the lab. Every day all of these wine producers were submitting these samples for analysis at the lab so they could see technically what the numbers were and make sure they were in the right parameters. And that's why you had access to all of, all of these different samples. Yeah, and it's a very interesting job. We spend two-thirds of, of, of time out of the laboratory by testing outside, by going uh, to appointments, to symposiums, to technical things. It's very interesting. but. At the end, I wanted to stop because, you know, I had in my mind a way of making wine that was much more natural than what we were making. I wanted to try to make wine with grapes. It seems to be... <laughs> I don't want to reinvent uh, vinification, but I wanted to use less products. And, you know, you know, when you are an analogist, you are very confident with your client and the client is very confident with you and there's a, a very good uh, energy between us. Not all of them, but when it works, it's very, very good. But after bottling, you disappear. You try the wines, you, you follow it, you, you try to imagine the best for it. After bottling, it's commercial way, and you never try it anymore. You know, I, I wanted something else. I wanted to go further than this, to, to say, yeah, it's my wine. I did it. It's maybe not perfect, but I made the best. And... Um, you are your own consultant, and <laughs> I needed to to go back to culture, to farming. Uh, I am always reading books about viticulture, about plant philosophy, about the soils, about biodynamy, about winemaking, about uh, and you know uh, I'm much more interested in soils than in winemaking because there are no many books and no many things about natural and very classical winemaking. The most interesting books I've read were the 19th century ones. Because you're always quoting those old books, and that's why. Yeah. It's because there's no talk about how to do what you want to do in the, in the books you're finding that are published more recently. Something that was completely new for me, but that is fascinating. It's my, my way. I like it. To go to no sulfur vinification, to go to no filtration, to go to low sulfur bottlings, to go to to biodynamy in the vines, try to, to use uh, less copper, less sulfur in the vines, and many things like this. And I found in those methods, in those geobiology, biodynamy, plants to save plants using uh, essential oils, it has been discovered, but it has been forgotten. Because in, in recent analogy, uh, I think they can't stand doing the same things than five years ago, because there's a business to sell machines, to sell products, and 
we go further and further with so much complicated methods. It's interesting because you're in an area of Burgundy where specifically in the landscape, you can see the changes of the Industrial Revolution when Dijon tripled in size. And you actually can see it out your window. And then in sort of response to that, and then also what you were seeing in the wines of the whole region, you kind of went for a more pre-industrial kind of winemaking. So it's sort of a response on two levels. It's a new old style. It's a way of vinification that is uh, growing right now everywhere. But it's just the way to make wine one century ago. In the wineries, electricity has given comfort and controlling temperature just a bit permits to avoid uh, mistakes. For example, you know, 47 is, a, is an incredible vintage. But how many 47s have made vinegar? At the opposite, 18 was the same with very high degrees, very high ripeness. And we have saved nearly all the wines by analysis, by controlling temperatures to avoid them to, to go higher than, the, than what the yeast can afford. It's just by using the cooler for one or two days. It's nearly nothing. The thing that makes you somewhat unique is that you have a lab background and you can read all the technical specs, but at the same time, you're very interested in, say, not adding sulfur until bottling. So that's a combination I don't often meet. Yes, and you know, and you know the labs, they sell analyses, they sell products, they sell addresses, but you are able to buy just a part of this. And for example, 18 was a very difficult vintage due to high degrees. It has been very dry, very sunny. And, you know, Grenache is able to ferment 15 degrees. But Pinot Noir was, has never been, it's not born to the yeast that are in, uh, in Burgundy. You know, they're not made for this. In the area, the natural degrees are 12, 13. And I think the natural yeast in Burgundy are not very good for this. At the opposite, our bacteria are incredible. They can make malolactic at 10 degrees. They can make malolactic with incredible low pHs. And um, everything in the, in the area is logical. And the bacteria are made for normal Pinot, normal Chardonnay. And if you were using them in South of France, it would be a, a disaster, I'm sure of it. So while you were still at the lab in 1999, you made your first wine? Yeah, I was the king of Gamay in Marseille. <laughs> I had blended all the Gamays of Marseille. It, <laughs> it was crazy. And in uh, 2002, two or three, I had uh, 2.5 hectares of Gamay on 5 hectares, 0.5 of Aligoté. It was incredible. The cheapest wines in the in Burgundy, and it was a disaster, economic disaster, because they were sold so low. I remember in New York the first time I sold Gamay, it was an incredible pastou grain made with a 1934 vine. The vine is lovely, but we were selling it three uh, euros eighty, and it's completely at the opposite of what it cost. It's uh, much more than this, but the market was this. I was just starting. And we are starting to work with Becky, who has been my first, uh, first client. You knew Olivier Lamy, and he introduced you to Becky. Yeah. I knew very well Olivier. Yeah, we were at school together with Nicolas Rossignol, Benjamin Leroux, uh, Pierre-Yves Collin. So you're sort of a generational group, and you yeah. sometimes taste together and talk. Yeah, it was a generation. We were at wine school in Bonn together. So, yeah, we are 40, 45. It's a group of very good friends, and... 
we are always talking together, we are always trying together. I always try to experiment some things before making them. For example, uh, we have experimented for three years different ways of uh, maceration with destemming, crushed, all bunch. But it, it's quite hard to make it in a, during the harvest because you have to select your grapes and to make very small vinifications in small tanks instead of vinifying in a 50, 60 hectoliters tank, you sipper in five different 10 hectoliters tank. So the temperatures are much more difficult to control, the pumpings, uh, the pressings have to be made separately. But after aging, it's very interesting to compare those maceration methods, to compare corks, to compare the new technical corks versus the classical ones. You have different soil types. You have parcels that are heavy on the limestone, parcels that are heavy on the clay. You have iron-rich clay, and you also have sandy parcels. And if you were to look at the differences in terms of both farming and how the wines taste, what would you say about the differences of soil type? Oh, it's completely different. And you know, we all the year try to understand the soils. When we prune, when we plow, when we fertilize, some lands have needs more um, fertilizers. I use manure. And on the bottom, we use less to avoid to have too strong vines. And because they are more clayey, they are much deeper. And everything is different on the soil. And, you know, I'm trying to give to my soils right now because we don't know if climate change will be uh, the same all the, year, all the years. And in Burgundy, we are in the middle and, you know, when you are in Languedoc, you know it will be always sunny, you know it will be dry, and it's maybe normal if it's not raining for two months. In Burgundy, absolutely not. And if we change the culture with the canopy, it can be like this for 18, it can be like this for 15, it can be like this for all three. But what about the difference between all three that was very dry, that was incredibly hot, and all four that was completely the opposite with so much rain? So, you know, you have to be very prudent when you move the, the viticulture because our climate can be black or white. Because this situation with alternating warm and cold years makes it more difficult than if, if it were just consistently generally warm. Yeah, it's a continental climate with uh, many opposites. If you say in Valnais it's always dry in July and August, you maybe could keep many leaves to protect the grapes and having lower, lower, lower densities. But uh, next year, it will be maybe wet. But back onto the farming of different soil types. So the reason I'm asking you is sometimes I wonder to myself, when I have this glass of wine in my hand, am I tasting the soil type? Or am I tasting the way that a farmer would work this soil type? And so I guess what I'm asking you is, how do people handle high limestone versus high clay parcels in general? What would make the farming different? The draining, the ability of draining of the soil. In limestones, it's very easy because uh, it's stony, it's like a roof. When it's raining, water gets down very quickly. In clay, it's a bit different. For example, two great terroirs, Clovoujou and Musigny. In Clovoujou, it's clay, it's very strong clay, that when it's dry, it's compact, and when it's wet, it's play-doh. It turns kind of a gray color. Yeah. When we are plowing, the soil hasn't to be too dry and too wet. In French, it's called ressuyage. We have to go when it's just raining, when it's still quite wet, 
to avoid compaction with the tractors. Because if you go in Predo, it, it's a disaster. But it won't be at the same time in a dwelling soil in the top of soil. And the example of Clovoujou and Musigny is very interesting because there's just the small world that separates them. But the geology is completely different. For example, you may be wait for three or four days more to go and plow Clovoujou or the Musigny. You will start by the Musigny. You know, it means that it needs several days to plow all the estate. So something you've mentioned to me in the past is that with limestone, you can find what you tend to refer to as verticality in the wine. You like to use that word instead of minerality, I find. And then that also with clay, you tend to get more reduction in the wine. Yeah, more strengths, more, more noble green aromas for the whites and... I could have some other examples in Saint-Aubin with Remilly, that is limestone. You have always some uh, some exotic fruits, some mangoes, some uh, incredible uh, yellow fruits, salad fruits. It's made of limestone, broken limestone, like, like a wall in the house. And it's draining, but due to those plaques of limestone, it's not too dry. It's maybe less dry than uh, uh, the gravel soils in Gevry or Marsanet, fond to alluvial cones. And you know, with the plates of limestone, the humidity stays on uh, the side. And the woods succeed to catch this humidity. You know, they go inside and they succeed to catch this. And if you compare, you have some very light and very warm minerality in Remilly. And if you compare with Rion that is made of, uh, there are marls, like Charlemagne, for example, when you try the wine, you smell strength, you smell nearly tannins. And you smell this uh, green on bitterness that is very interesting, but it's a very different style. And the whiteness with um, clay is often a bit, uh, a bit later because the, um, the water quantity that is stocked is a bit higher. So the vine normally suffers a bit less of dryness. And because water is cold, when you are under the wind, you are cold. And it needs energy to be evaporated in spring. So it means that there are soils that they are colder for a longer time. But then also they need more aeration later. Yeah. Because you got to get the moisture out. So you got to plow, basically. Yeah. Yeah, because it could be compact. But, you know, if you have a very good viticulture way, the aeration can be made naturally by worms, by the, the grass uh, roots, and especially, for example, by, by the frost. So something that you like to do, for instance, is to roll the grass in certain parcels back into the soil, as opposed to cutting the grass. Burgundy soils are poor. They are very good for vine, but we couldn't cultivate many other things because uh, the yields would be, would be bad. And they are quite superficial. Even with um, clays on Mars, there are no, no much water inside. And uh, we can't keep grass because in summer it's too dry and there's too much competition with vine. And it's a method to use a uh, grass between the walls, but uh, I don't think it's a good way because it uses too much uh, nitrogen, too much water, and it, it decreases the yield. And uh, you know, it's you have to find the balance between uh, too much and, and lack of, uh, of vigor. When you vinify some some wines from those vines, they are very dense, they are very concentrated, they are very interesting because of their body, but they have no finesse, because too much tannins, because of green aromas, because uh, when you plow a bit, 
you have more very light a woman as you have more very you know very subtle and it's a mistake we made in the in the last 15 years for my mind I've always tried to degrees 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 the vigor to obtain more concentration and I saw that with less volume I would obtain some much more expressive wines and you know to have more full-bodied wines and to have a very good structure in uh, in mouth and absolutely not uh, I had some strong tannins some wines that needed 10 years to be open no fruit just black aromas black and and bitterness and right now I've succeeded to increase a bit the strength of the vine and the wines are so much more expressive but in Burgundy usually and it's you know it's an old method of culture you know what has been efficient for 1000 years is maybe not the worst way and like density you know the places where we plant vines the pruning methods many things have we, we have to find them again well you know you have to reinvent what has been made in the past and uh, in Burgundy you have to not to destroy but to control grass in the period when the, the vine is growing because at this period it needs uh, it needs to grow very quickly to make strong branches to make a big canopy uh, that will permit to wipe the grapes at the best from April to June you have to control very strongly so you have to plow a bit more and you know when we plow in the vines in Burgundy it's just 5-6 centimeters it's very superficial and you control it and the more you go the season is uh, it goes in summer the more you try to keep more grass to try to start a competition with vine you know it's it restricts that will stop the growth of the vine if it doesn't have enough water it'll stop growing yeah yeah at the opposite if there's no stress they will grow grow and you know it's a very important date july the 14th in france we always remember this this date because it's a it's an historic date but in the middle of july the vines um normally the growth is finished all the leaves that will grow will make a, in french it's called entrecoeur they are secondary branches they are not useful because they consume much sugar uh, that could go to the grapes so those would be called laterals in california the horizontal oh, yeah, laterals okay yeah it's this and we have to try to stop their growth because they will use too much energy and the canopy will be maybe too dense. And the problem, this density can be very good if the climate is like 18. It's a south, uh, south of France climate. There's no wind, so no botrytis. But usually in Burgundy, we are very careful with botrytis. So we try to obtain the best aeration of the grapes as possible. You take those up. You want to leave others because you want to shade the grape, but you have to be careful for the year because you want shading, but you don't want moisture. Yeah, and it's a difficult choice because, for example, uh, I repeat for 18 because it was a, a very particular year, but uh, taking off leaves in 18 is maybe not the, well, the best way because they had maybe too much sun and we have burnt some, but when you take off uh, leaves, it's, uh, it's after flowering, it's in July. You know, when you take off leaves in July, you don't know which will be the, the, the August weather. And a lot could change in that time. Yeah. So I guess that leads us in well to Guillaume and concern with the sap flow when you prune. Yeah, it's very, very important for me. Yeah. 
We have converted in 08. Yeah, we have started uh, 06 by trying to understand the, the SAP ways. The way that SAP goes within yeah. the vine. Well, and we have started very seriously Pussar in 08. And you try, you always try to find another solution to avoid to make a big cut. But if you have to, you maybe can. But Vieux-Poussard is a pruning method that tries to make the cuts on the top of the stock. And you will try by looking at the, at the subways to always keep the buds under the, under the branch for the bottom to be safe. So as this way, you have many cuts on the top and uh, the bottom tube is very good. And as this way, the plant is very, is very alive. Basically, you don't make cuts to the old wood, you make cuts to the new wood. And for this reason, the vine is more healthy, including less susceptible to ESCA, which is a wood disease. Yes, because when you cut uh, a branch, it dries inside. So it dries in the stock. Uh, you know, in winter, it, uh, it stocks sugars to, to keep energy for spring. And the most the stock is alive, the best uh, the sugars are on the strongest it is because the sap goes very quick, very easily, and it has much energy. And when you cut, it goes in the wood, it goes dry. And when you cut on old stock, you see that there's just 10 or 20% of a live wood. It's horrible. So basically, if you do cut the old wood, you block the sap flow. And if you don't cut it, then you're able to get the sap to go further into the vine. There's obviously a difference. The vines seem to be stronger. And in just 10 years, we have recreated some new subways. And it forgets the dead parts uh, that have been made maybe 10 or 20 years ago. In terms of the winemaking, you tend to prefer these days a lot of whole cluster for red. Do you also do whole cluster pressing for white? Or Yeah. So in terms of your experiments with both white and red, using whole cluster or destemming, what have you found? For my mind, and when we speak with Paul or Peter Wasserman, they often come to try at the cellar. I think I, I've always preferred all bunch, or maybe crushed all bunch. It's for my mind, and Paul is the same. He preferred all bunch because of bitterness, because of very complex aromas. You know, they're complex aromas with some small defaults, some small acetates, some small phenols but that gives so much complexity to the nose. You know, it's snowball, the snowball green. What do you see in terms of analysis when you do D-stem or whole cluster? How is it different? Less color for, um, for all bunch. Less color, but much more stable in time. It becomes a bit brown very quickly in aging in the first year, but it's brown forever. It doesn't move very much. Less alcohol, because uh, stems catch some alcohol. Higher pH, because the stems give some water and some minerals. And it's curious because, you know, many, many persons vinify with analysis. And I'm a very bad analogist because I never do it. I sometimes make analysis to know, and because it's, uh, it's uh, legally, uh, you have to. But I never look at them, but uh, I'm always uh, going in wine with my glass. I'm always testing, testing, testing. Because the best, uh, the best machine to analyze is your mouse. And for 18, the values were very bad. They seemed to be very bad. But the tartaric acid in the mast was very good, very quite high. And it means that uh, 
after malik fermentation with low malic acid values the, the acidity of 18s are perfect i didn't want to to change anything many many laboratories have may uh, they wanted to acidify the mast with my clients with my uh, where i go to to be consultant we didn't uh, acidify any any batch any 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 when the acidity is low because it's a warm vintage for my mind i don't i never want to change a vintage in another one if it's warm if it's wet it's if it's uh, a bit acid we have to, to understand how to make the greatest wine as possible but without changing the vintage 18 is sunny 15 is sunny 19 is sunny 10 is very pure is a piece of fresh 13 is fresh you have to understand in 13 how to have harvest and how to cultivate your vine to obtain some ripe fruits maybe it's uh, just by 25 or 30 hectoliters and not 50 at with 50 it's maybe uh, acid and with no taste, a bit liquid. But it means that 50 was too much. It means that you have just looked for money and for security and not for the highest quality as possible. So something you mentioned earlier was crushing fruit. So that's when you open the berry before you ferment it. And I wonder if we can talk about that a little bit because I know that's important to your thinking and what you're looking for. Crushing fruits has many reasons. It permits to liberate uh, juice Especially when you are like me, when you try to vinify with no SO2. And when you vinify with no products, no SO2, no enzymes, no yeast, no... It's very interesting because you have to... It's like in the vines to understand uh, why on which grass we want to go. You have to understand the environment, you know, to understand the microbiology. And vinifying with no yeast or no SO2 is very easy from... Not easy, it's very difficult, but it's very easy to understand. Because you just have to, you have to try to to avoid competition between uh, the best uh, Saccharomyces cerevisiae we want to ferment, the best yeast. You have to, to to avoid the competition between them and lactic bacteries, between them and acetic bacteries, between them and wets. And the best way is to leave them work in optimum uh, temperature, eighteen degrees, eighteen twenty at the beginning, when the grapes come from the vine. If you use whole bunch, you know, there's no juice. There's just much air between the berries. And on the skin, if you don't liberate the juice, the yeast won't be able to go in the berry to transform the sugar in alcohol. So with whole cluster, if you don't break the berries and you keep them whole, then there's no juice at the bottom of the tank and it takes much longer to get the ferment started. And what you're saying is that there is a a window in which you want the ferment to get started because you also have to consider that acetic, which is vinegar, will come in and you want to get the ferment started. And so this is one of the reasons that you think crushing is important is to get more juice in the bottom of the tank so the ferment will start. Is that correct? Yeah, that's correct, yeah. And because we've no yeast and no SO2, you have to, to try to ferment very quickly to install your natural yeast to avoid the contamination by some... Uh, some bad microorganisms that can destroy your grapes. In, in just two, three, four days, you can have acetic uh, attack. Your grapes are good for uh, nothing. You, you won't succeed to make wine. And you have to obtain quick starting for your yeast to, uh, to colonize the, 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 the must. If you don't crush, it can last uh, three, four, five days. And it's too long because you leave the bad, the bad bacteria to attack 
before the yeast. If you use sulfur on an industrial yeast, it doesn't matter because they will kill the rest. So there's three things there. One is that you're not inoculating with cultured yeast, and so it takes longer. The other is that there wouldn't be much juice if you didn't crush, so it would take much longer. And then the third is that you're not using sulfur, and sulfur would knock out the bad stuff before it got in there. And so if you want to combine those three things, you need to crush. Yep. And so it's for the microbiological aspect, but uh, for the extraction, crushing is a is very important. It gives a very different style of wine. You know, it can give some uh, stronger wines, blacker wines. It avoids carbonic aromas. Maybe you look for them. If you look for carbonic aromas, uh, you put CO2 on the, on, the, on the berries and you try to keep CO2. But for my mind, I don't like it at all because it's a, it's a technical way that is always the same and you don't you know, you don't find the difference between terroirs. You just find the technical way that is very good. The wines are very soft, very, it's infusion. It's not extraction. The, the color and aromas go by fermenting in the must inside the berry. But it's not the classical way. And it's, it's a shame for me when we, when we wake up terroir, when we sleep terroir, when we, we eat terroir in Burgundy and in many other places. It destroys the complexity for me. In the world that's fashionable now, the natural wine world, sometimes people use semi-carbonic macerations to make wine with no sulfur, but you like to extract with no sulfur. And so that's why you're crushing, is because you want that extraction. What you think a semi-carbonic maceration might do is homogenize the wines, make all the wines taste the same no matter where they're from. And that's why you're avoiding that and you're doing a more classical extraction. Yes, it's more classical because we don't look for saturation with CO2. And we don't close the tanks, they're open. Just to obtain the, the complexity of uh, all bunch, to have the minority of stems, to have the, the skin contact, to have the maceration, the fermentation in the berries, but without all CO2. The more I try my wines with different ways, the more uh, I like them with uh, a part of juice at the beginning. And I think... In, in what I'm looking for, to obtain more complexity and easier fermentations and pure fermentations with no sulfur and no yeast, I think uh, maybe 20-30% crushed berries to give juice for the fermentation. They give juice and they give strength to the wine, but not too much because 100% crushed and the experiment is too strong for me. But with 20-30% crushed berries and the rest with whole bunch, you still obtain fruit, very noble, elegant fruit of uh, of whole bunch, but the strength, the density is, uh, is very serious with, with, um, with crushing. And then something that's very important for you is vertical pressing as opposed to using a horizontal pneumatic press. Yeah, it was um, an economical choice at the beginning in 05 because I had no money to, to buy a pneumatic. As this way, I've, uh, I've used my grandfather's one. And it was very successful. The mast was so good and so different. It was very interesting. And since uh, 05, I've developed it more and more and more and more. And I've bought uh, new ones, uh, new, new old ones. And I have five different sizes of, uh, of presses. So after you're done pressing, there's a big cake of skins. 
Yes, the extraction is completely different. Pneumatics are very good pieces, but uh, with the vertical, you know, the, the must or the wine has to go inside the skins. And it has to, to make several tens of centimeters to go from the center of the cake to go out. So it's a bit filtered on the, on the wines are very light and they are bright, they are shining when they are finished. And uh, uh, with a um, pneumatic press, it's completely the opposite. It's a very good technical way to extract, but there's not this, uh, this circulation in, inside the skins. And so really it's about two things for you, the vertical press. It's not actually about the pressure. It's about the contact of the juice with the skins, and it's about how that juice exits the press. Yes, because we don't know the pressure we, we obtain in vertical presses, but uh, it's certainly nearly the same than with the pneumatic. Certainly two bars. But yeah, for me, it's uh, the, the time of extraction and uh, the skin contact with a big cake of skins. Yeah, it's very important. The result is different. The, the wines are maybe a bit stronger. This yellow, yellow color for the white is maybe a bit higher because, uh, especially for me, it doesn't use SO2. So there's a small oxidization, normal oxidization, because the must, it's completely blown under the press, and maybe it's due to this, the color is a bit stronger. But uh, with skin contact, you extract some phenolics and some aromas from skin that will protect the wine in the future. One of the things that's really important in your thinking is, again, protecting the wine because you don't want to use sulfur. And so how do you go about protecting the wine from oxidation after mallow? Globally, after mallow at home means just after the fermentation because with no SO2, the mallows are finished in November. Normally, they, classically, they are classically done after the sugar, just after the sugar. But it sometimes happens, uh, and sometimes quite often happen especially with very high ripeness like vintages like like 18th. But mallows are often done before, before the sugars are finished. It's a difference for white and red in terms of when mallow happens, though, right? Yes, because, you know, for the whites, the temperature is much lower. They are in the cellar, in the, in the barrels. And the pH for the whites, because there are no skin contact, there are no macination, the pHs are much lower. So the bacteria are much less aggressive because of pH. Otherwise, for example, the pHs are 3.20, 3.15, 3.20 when they are fermenting. For the reds, they are 3.35, 3.40. It's much higher. It's much higher because that's a logarithmic scale. So even though it's going up only 0.2, it's a big difference. Yeah. Because of macivation, because we harvest a bit later reds than whites, because we harvest whites on pH and on freshness of taste, and we harvest whites on uh, phenolic maturity. So it's maybe one week later. So pHs are naturally higher. And with maceration, you extract minerals from stems, from skins, that will make pH uh, increase. So as pH goes up, acid goes down. And so the problem with a mallow before alcoholic is done with red is that you can get more volatile. It's a disaster for the reds because... You are nearly sure volatile acid will, will increase very, very high. Um, but for the white, it's not so, so dangerous. Mallows f- often finish before sugars, and sugars finish in spring, and there's no problem. But then after that time, one of the keys for you is that you keep a lot of lees, that you don't remove the lees. You keep it in the barrel, 
and then you age for a while without racking. Sometimes you stir, and that could be a year, it could be 16 months. Yep. You, you know, they are naturally, naturally stable versus oxygen because of the leaves that are reductive, because of the strength of the wine that will consume oxygen, because of the old microorganisms that are still alive and who use oxygen. You know, uh, in bowels, there are microorganisms everywhere, and they will consume oxygen instead of wine. And uh, they don't need a SO2 for, for a long time. For example, we'll try some rosé, fleur de pinot. I never had sulfur before 18 months, because it's stable, because by testing, it's very pure. And you have to be confident in your wines. And when you make some no SO2 wines, foraging like I do, the wines have some moments where they are incredible, they are so good, and after them, they have some periods when they seem, where they seem to be completely oxidized. For example, my wines are often a bit closed and they, are, they seem to be yellow, to be motorized. They could seem to be primox, some, uh, some dead wines. In barrel. Yeah, in barrel, from, uh, from August to October. And... You couldn't believe they are the same wines. You couldn't believe they had no SO2 if you were trying them in February. They are, they are going to freshness. It's incredible. It means that the wine has been rebuilt differently. It has been oxidized. It's a second birth. And to be stronger. I've actually encountered that because the first time I visited your cellar was late July and the whites were crashing really hard and showing um, what seemed to be oxidation in barrel. And so I thought, well, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. And then I came back another time at a different time of year, and the whites were fresh. And it showed me that you were following this cycle without trying to manipulate the cycle. Basically, the wines go up, and they come down, and they go back up. Yeah, yeah. For white. Yeah, oh, for white, for white too, yeah. And it's really interesting to, to try them. You just have to forget they were bad in September. <laughs> right. You hope uh, journalists won't come. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. <laughs> To expand on what Sylvain has been saying, I want to bring in here the perspective of an American winemaker, John Kongsgaard, whose trips to Burgundy cellars in the 1980s influenced his development of the Newton Unfiltered Chardonnay in California. Here's what John told me in episode 327 of this program. The, the Chardonnay picture was, my Chardonnay picture was very influenced by those annual visits to Burgundy in the 80s. So the unfiltered idea, which goes together with a second year of aging, it's pretty hard to make unfiltered Chardonnay and bottle it in the first August. But if you're liberated to leave the wine in barrel for a second year, now you can start to think of it like a red wine. Lots of people do not filter their red wine. Most people filter their white wine. That's partly just the time in barrel. Nature will clarify the wine if you give it enough time. So I found the, I had the privilege to visit the great places. It was Costerie and Comte La Fon and Bona de Martre and the Gagnards and Ramenet and so on. And what I found was that it was actually pretty shocking. My first trip was in the spring and here were all the wines that were six months old or eight months old. They all seemed incredibly oxidized, totally knackered, kind of no sulfur and a lot of aldehyde. And I thought, what is happening here? 
And they said, oh, no, this is just what they're doing at this time of year. Come back after harvest and you'll see these same wines and they'll be in a different stage. And so I learned, uh, I did that, came back, and there were these wines that I thought were goners, were fresh and beautiful and had some nuance that you never can find in California wines of those days. So I learned the magic of the second year of aging to let the wine kind of crash in the summer and then be revived in the fall with the first racking and the end of malolactic and the first sulfur addition. So there's this whole idea of letting the wine really, really die and then having its resurrection come in the second half of its life. So we, I, we were really the first, I came back from France telling Newton this. Peter said, wow, that's pretty far-fetched. said, it's, it's, let's try it. We got a lot of Chardonnay here. Let's use our best vineyards, a few barrels, and give it a go. So we did that in starting in 88. So we left uh, the top barrels, a little blend of a few hundred cases. For the second year, late sulfuring, full malolactic, racking around when the wine was a little over a year old to make the blend, first sulfur at that point. And this was a revelation. I thought, huh, there's where that nutty character of white burgundy comes from and so on. John's whole interview is really worth revisiting if you haven't lately. John touches on a few more topics that Sylvan also discusses here. And that episode of John's is number 327. But it is worth pointing out in this episode that extended aging in barrel isn't something that every white burgundy producer does, and there are several examples of producers in burgundy today who don't make their wines that way. What Sylvan and John do with Chardonnay is a choice that has its own implications, and that is something Sylvan discusses in more depth right after the break. I've been lucky enough to try some amazing wines while traveling over the years. Unfortunately, I've found that some of those same wines are really hard to find here in the United States. Whenever I run into trouble finding a favorite bottle, I go to idealwine.com and they have what I'm looking for. Whether it is a hard-to-source bottle of Burgundy or a micro-production natural wine like I Need the Sun by Domaine de Miroir, I know there's a chance that Ideal Wine might have it available. And Ideal Wine's entire Paris inventory is available to American customers with just a click. The process is seamless, the site is easy to use, and orders are shipped directly to you. Head over to idealwine.com, that's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to see for yourself what you could be drinking. One of the things you do is give a little badinage to whites, right? To protect a little bit against oxidation one or two times stirring. Sometimes, it depends on the vintage because it's curious, but 18 didn't need it. But I sometimes uh, steer the lees in November, December, when the cellars, when the temperature is going down very strongly. And when temperature goes down, the oxidization is stronger because you solubilize more oxygen. And I sometimes steer the lees at this period just because uh, it permits to mix between the wine that seems to be more on too much oxidized and the lees that are too much reductive because they have, they have get compact. And compaction makes them be really reductive. And after stewing, just after stewing, you when you try the wine, it's perfect. It gives acidity due to the crystals of uh, of tartaric acid in the lees. It gives freshness. It uh, oxidization has disappeared, and uh, reduction has disappeared, and it's perfect. 
uh, usually stay one or twice in winter, and sometimes once in summer when it's too hot, too warm, too dry. And you know, in the cellars at this time in August, July, August, the woods are often, even even old woods, and it's the opposite. New oak is often much softer than old woods. Stewing the leaves permits to get freshness and to eject the the wood. It's certainly like a, a small fining. So how do you see the role of reduction in your winemaking for both white and red wines? What's the role that reduction plays? The role of reduction, it's maybe a way of vinification, you know, by non-decanting when you leave sediments in the, in the white. For the reds, it's a bit different because I think all bunch vinification is stronger than using the lees. When we fill the barrels, they have been decanted for the reds. At the opposite, it's not... Uh, as useful as the, as the whites. You know, the lees in, in white wines are made of yeast. A big part of the lees is made of yeast. In the wets, the fermentation is, has been finished in the tank during the macevation, and the lees are made of a part of lees, but uh, there's more, some waste of skins, some proteins, something that comes from the grape, and... You have to be careful not to use too much shum because of reduction, bad reduction, and because they can be used as food uh, by the, the worst uh, microorganisms, wets, for example. So we decant them. They are not completely clear because they make the balance between oxidization and reduction, and they control wood. The oak aromas, the oak strands, the oak tannins, especially controlled by uh, the volume of, of fleas in weds. But if you use too much, the, you lose purity in aromas, you lose freshness, you lose matching, and if there's lack of fillies, the wines are dry and they seem to oxidize much quicker. But for the whites, the reduction is a, is a way of vinification, it's a traditional way, and it, I don't know if it permits to use less SO2, but it's very efficient to use less SO2. And for me, this uh, very light pressing to avoid, because you know, Decanting has been developed with the, um, the electric presses, with the mechanic presses, because they were crushing so much and they were so aggressive to the grapes that there were so many sediments that were bad. And you, you were losing the fruit. And you were just in bitterness, in strong aromas, in very bad green aromas in the past. Due to the, to the presses that were new in the 50s, 60s, with a vertical press in the past, nothing was decanted. So when you say decanted, you mean remove from the gross lees. You mean yeah. take the lees yeah. out of the barrel. Débourbage. So settle and then remove. Yeah, the classical uh, in French it's called débourbage for the whites. When you leave the, the wines in tank for 24, 36 hours and you sipper the must from the bubs, it wasn't in the past. But uh, with long, very soft pressings as we do, the wines go naturally to reductive aromas, but... Uh, Maybe due too to the concentration in the vine. In the in the white wines, reduction can be due to sediments. It can be due to higher temperatures of fermentation, and it, it can be due to sulfur, especially in the vines. When you spray against oium, too much sulfur, and it's especially can be due to a lack of nitrogen. So about uh, grass in vines. If there's too much grass, the grass will consume the, the nitrogen and the fermentation will be bad. The sugars won't be finished before winter and you can 
have some uh, deviant awamas and especially some reductions. So do you see reduction as one thing or as a family of things that seem uh, very it's similar? It's a big family of things that can be solubly. They can be called uh, riz or they can be called garlic. One of the things you've told me is that when you're not using sulfur, reduction can help protect the wine for white in a way that doesn't change the taste or the nose of the wine like it would if you added sulfur. It would be different. It would be different. But you know, I don't look for my wines to be reduced because I don't use SO2. In my mind, there's absolutely no line with... Uh, okay, I misunderstood. Yeah, absolutely no. They go to reduction because they want to go to reduction because it's typical of limestone, because it's typical of uh, of dense concentrated must, because they have not been uh, decanted at all, and because the fermentation is very natural. And by using some natural yeast, the reduction is stronger than if you use some uh, some commercial ones. Because... When you buy some yeast, some industrial yeast, everything's done to have the best fruit as possible to avoid reduction because in the technical big industries' uh, minds, reduction is a, is a default. It's an enemy of fruit. It's an enemy of fruit. Especially if you leave them in big, big, big tanks and especially if you sell the wines very quickly. It's absolutely not an enemy of fruit. It's, uh, it's the first way of complexity in burgundy wines. After 18 months of aging... I heard you say something interesting there to me because sometimes I feel like I get more reduction on limestone parcels, like I get a sense of reduction off a limestone. And then sometimes I feel like I get a lot of reduction off clay, which theoretically would be the opposite, but it also seems to give reduction. Do you find the same or? Yeah, yeah. And it's difficult to talk about reduction because there is no reduction. There are reductions. Right. Yeah. That can come from a bad lease, that can come from lack of nitrogen that can come from uh, temperatures, they can come from the yeast, but the noble reduction we often smell in, uh, in Burgundy is due to very good yeast and there's a very good value of uh, sediments and long fermentation, no much nitrogen. If you add nitrogen in the must, it won't be reduced. And so for me, a lot of times I see your wines as working on a couple different levels all at once. So there's the breadth of your wines, the width of them, and then there's the verticality of them, which are often in a sort of tension in the way that they work together. And then there's a kind of freedom from not sulfur, because you don't sulfur until bottling. A lot of people would sulfur when the grapes came in, they'd sulfur at the press, they'd sulfur after mallow, and you don't do any of that. So in the way I see your wines as kind of often in flux, not just in the barrel, but in the bottle. Like when you pour it and it it kind of shimmers in a way that some wines don't because these three qualities is how I would sum it up. Yeah, 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 sure. I agree with you. Yeah, it's a bit different. But, uh, you know, there are so many parameters between the press, between crushing, between decanted or not, uh, the temperatures, the yeast. It's incredible to to try some uh, exactly the same grapes once upon a time, a long time ago. We have shared grapes with friends to compare our vinification style. So exactly one barrel, one barrel in grapes for some whites. So just to see the difference between uh, pressing, between uh, fermenting, uh, using natural yeast or not, between, 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 between. And the result was, uh, the result was incredible. Incredible. And you know, maybe the, all those 
small details. Uh, are details, they are important. The reflection is important. But it's curious because at the end, I think the walls, the roof, you know, the mood where it's unified has been more important than the press and all the... The environment. Yeah. Yeah, you can always tell when someone, well, not always, but you can tell when someone has moved to a different cellar because the wines taste different, even if they're doing the same yeah. thing. You know, maybe the yeast environment has changed, for example. Yeah, and it was a big surprise for us to, to see this because we thought it would be different. It's obvious because uh, the mood, the cellar, the yeast, everything's different, but we couldn't think it could be so, so large. The, the difference would be so important. And so maybe we could talk about three different grape varieties that you vinify in relation to some of the topics and how they're different. So we touched on a bunch of topics and we sort of jumped around white to red. But if I were to better understand Pinot Noir versus Chardonnay versus Aligote in terms of a fermentation and a maturation, what should I know about those grape varieties? In the vines, Chardonnay is very sensitive to oium. Aligote would be more sensitive to milieu, very sensitive to milieu, but much less to odium. So very different, uh, very different sensibility. You know, it's very different. It means that uh, they won't be sensitive at the same things on the same years. Uh, the vintages are, you know, they, they can be impacted by milieu or odium. Very rarely is both. But for the culture, it's quite easy, especially with all vines. And Aligoté has to be controlled a bit more, but I think it's very important to prune it very short just to keep the, the first buds on the branch, because the, the first buds are less productive, less grapes and smaller grapes, so it's better. Like Gamay, when you go in Beaujolais, the Gamays are always pruned in Goblet. And it's because they understood the varieties and understood it would permit to, to give the best. Chardonnay is um, quite easy to cultivate, except in the oidium, but it's quite easy. It's uh, easy to control yields. The ripeness is very quick. It's a variety that can be very rich in sugar. The natural degrees can be very high. But in Burgundy, especially in Côte de Nuit, Côte de Bonne, it's nearly never able to produce some sweet wines, except with a, with a Macon, Viré Clessé, where the sweet wines of Chardonnay are very good. And Pinot, it's uh, certainly the most difficult grape in Burgundy. Everybody knows it. Because it can't afford too much yield. It can't afford lack of maturity. It can't afford too high uh, maturities. It's maybe easier with too high maturities was a lower maturities. But uh, you, are, you always have to control the pruning lens, to control the buds, to control the leaves, to control everything. And it's sensitive to botrytis, it's sensitive to color, it's sensitive to many things. It's very funny to vinify, but... Uh, it's certainly for this reason it's uh, it's so famous in Burgundy because it's paradise for it here. The climate is perfect for it. The soils are perfect. We never ask it for too high yields. It's often considered as, as one of the most difficult uh, varieties, but uh, I don't agree at all. So one interesting thing that kind of coincides date-wise with your career and then what was happening in Burgundy is that you were working in a lab doing analysis on a lot of wines from 97 to 2001, and that was also a key time in Burgundy for Premox on Chardonnay. So when you would see analysis on white Burgundy on Chardonnay, what was happening in the 90s and early 2000s, and what are your thoughts about Premox in general? It's a difficult question. 
We don't know because, you know, in the analysis, uh, there was nothing bad. The values of SO2 were good. They were still good. They were still at uh, normal values because with Primox, the vintners have uh, increased quite much SO2 values. As a result of that. Yeah, 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 yeah. To try to avoid. It doesn't avoid completely. But why Primox? Is it due to press? Uh, because of lack of tannins, because of lack uh, of oxidization. Pneumatic presses are maybe too soft. Maybe. And you know, uh, in the last 10 days, many guys have changed their pressing uh, methods. 10 years. Yeah. By pressing higher, by um, turning more to extract tannins, to extract some bitterness. Because, you know, when we yeah, were using the, the yellow presses, they were called Vaslin. Everybody had some, some presses like this. We had no, or nearly no Primax. And is it due to edgings that could be longer or shorter? But some guys who bottle early have no Primax. Some guys who bottle late have some. And is it due to cork that becomes bad? The density of cork that gives more, more oxygen to the wine. Because, you know... Is it due to cork or is it cork that shows the sensibility to Primax? Imagine, we, we stand by, uh, by hand, we, we, we try to make everything like, uh, like uh, jewels and the bottle is dead because of cork. Three years of work destroyed by a small cork. Do you descend by hand? Sometimes, yeah. I didn't know that. So then in that case, what have you seen as the difference between destemming by hand and destemming with machine? It's just for fun and to be sure that uh, it's made by hand for l'ancestral. Which is your most expensive red one. I destem it just a bit for small batches. When you look at the machines, when you look at the buoys that fall from destemmers, it's very difficult to be as good by hand. By hand, you, you, you crush some buoys and it's not soft. Maybe crushing's good. I don't know. Yeah. So what about the idea of fining and filtering? What do you think about these topics in general for red and white? Fining for the whites is... Uh, globally, it has decreased very much. It's still done, but just a bit with very low, 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 low quantities. But for my mind, I often use bentonite, some, uh, some clay. Bentonite, fine. Mm, bentonite, yeah. To clear the wines a bit, to avoid to filter them, because... With no SO2 for most of my white wines, we spend 15, 18, 20 months before bottling. I nearly never bottled before. And uh, just the bottom of the tank is filtered. Especially 17s, they were not clear, absolutely not. They were still very trouble. Uh, this way, we have filtered uh, one third in the bottom of the tank and unfiltered all the, all the top. It was like this for 17, but it can be different. How do you make that determination? What are you looking for? Like the pH, like the analysis with my glass. <laughs> right. You taste. And yeah, you yeah, I taste the wine. So one thing that I don't want to leave the interview without discussing, because it's both a part of where you are and then it's a large part of your work, is the different terroirs of Marcinet. Because it's actually three villages, one of which is called Marcinet in the Appalachian, and you make single Ludi wines from both Aligote, Chardonnay, and then also Pinot. So... Could you go over, in kind of more broad strokes, the terroir of Marcenay? There are three ones, but not especially on the villages. 
So the three villages are Kouché, Marsonnet and Chenov. But there are three parts. The first one is located between Kouché and Fissin in the south. It's a quite high slope, very strong limestone, white limestone comme l'ancien, that gives uh, very strong wines and very serious wines made to be kept, especially Champerdry. Uh, Champerdry are very high. I think it's the highest place in, uh, in Côte de Nuit with, uh, with Moret, with uh, Rue de Vergy. Rue de Vergy and Champerdry are the top places. And they are nearly the same soils, with, uh, with white, strong stones, and they are very good for the whites. There's this part of Champerdry, and a Champerdry is a Champerdry. The style is very clear. It's a, a very, very strong identity in this place. There's a second part that is between Couchet and Marsenet, and half on Couchet and half on Marsenet. It's the place of Jean uh, Salomon, Clémenjo, Claude Jeu, Charmeau Prêtre. They are very superficial soils on the stone, 30 centimeters of land, and the mother rock, uh, the elevation is a bit lower, with very soft wines. The wines are very elegant, very fresh, never very long, but very complex, you know, very, very fine. And the last part is uh, a small way from uh, Longerois, Claude du Roi, and Chapitre, where wines are much stronger, much more complex. And for my mind, Chapitre, Claude du Roi, Longerois, Champerny are the top premier crews of Marsanet. And it looks like there may in the future be premier crews of Marsanet officially from the Appalachian. They should, but uh, we, don't know, we don't know when. Maybe five, maybe ten years. In 1987 classification, many mistakes have been done. They said uh, it was too, uh, too large and well, some bad, um, bad arguments. And uh, we are asking to reclassify them. So that's sort of out of your hands at this point, but I know you're a man that is full of ideas and thoughts and experiments, and so what is really on your mind to try in the next few years? I, I don't know what I will change. I couldn't believe 10 years before I would, uh, I would plow 1.5 hectare with a horse, uh, that I would uh, stop to cut, that I would... Uh, use biodynamy that I would vinify with no sulfur. But it's clear for me that the evolution of my estate will go in this sense to try to, to make the most ecological viticulture as possible. And in my dreams, uh, I'd like to develop horse plowing. It could be possible in my mind to build a, a stable on and to buy uh, five horses. If the result in Clemenjo is better than Tractor, much better than Tractor, I'm able to. Savan Patai is interested in the evolution of techniques that can last a thousand years. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you very much. Savan Patai of Domaine Savan Patai in Marsonnet in Burgundy. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the 
crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening. This episode came together with a lot of help from the Wasserman family, particularly Peter Wasserman, who translated for Bruno Clare, and Becky Wasserman, who unfortunately passed away last year. I recorded with Becky back in 2017, and this is what she told me about aging windows and the wines of Marie Saint-Denis. Now, will people keep the Roche and the Saint-Denis long enough? And, all right, what is long enough? Now, it depends on how you like your wine as well. It is said, and I ought to be able to speak about this with more authority, as you get older, you like your wines to be younger. Um, I'm not sure that applies to me particularly, uh, but I can see one always has the thought, I'm not going to be here in 10 years. So, shall I, shall I not, you know, will I put this down... I have a tendency to buy Maurice Saint-Denis, either very good village, old vines, or a premier cru that I know is going to be more um, ready to drink earlier. That is for sure. But if you give me a lovely old Claude La Roche, I will not turn it away. You can hear more from Becky Wasserman about her life, her career, and her friendships in episode 430 of this program. My thanks to her and may she rest in peace. So let's move on to hedging or trimming. You're experimenting more recently with not hedging, which is not cutting the top of the vine off. And the alternative to hedging would be folding, so bringing it down or tying it. And so you're experimenting in certain parcels with keeping the top of the vine growth, and what have you seen as a result? Mm, I haven't really compared the, the difference yet because we have started with 17. But there was a mistake in the winery, and they have blended the, the two parts of the parcel for Ligoté. A 20 has made a mistake, it doesn't matter, it, uh, it's made. It was with Ligoté Chameau Pret. He has blended the two, two tanks of, uh, uh, of this parcel uh, in the same tank. I hate that guy. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, uh, yeah. So we forget 17, the wine is great, but uh, the experiment is, uh, is down. <laughs>